Hello and welcome to the speed dating version of Meet Me at the Museum. We're picking out just some of the highlights from the last seven series of the show. So join us as we get up close and personal with all manner of notable people, passions, paintings and even some preternaturally sinister looking plants. I'm Rob Crossan, travel and arts journalist and presenter, and I'm a massive fan of pottering around museums. You'll no doubt be relieved to hear that you don't need to get all dressed up, sit in front of a total stranger and be quizzed about your salary to enjoy this episode. But, like any successful speed date, we do want to be tempting enough to encourage you to delve deeper into the alluring personalities and amazing stories from the Meet Me at the Museum archive. And this episode has an unapologetic metropolitan flavour. All our selections are from London, which has a plethora of museums and art galleries to enjoy. That's a lot of looking longingly with your nose pressed up against the glass. We'll be heading to Euston with Derry Girl star Siobhan McSweeney. There's another eyeball. Barbara. Inviting us to look what or is to it? run away screaming. What is Please it, tell us. Mel Gedroich comes over all neoclassical in Ealing. I sense, you know, unease and family rifts in here, dramas. You're very sensitive, a bit like Dynasty. And actor and writer Lalita Chakrabarti is in Forest Hill, South London, where, frankly, anything might happen. Ooh, listen to that echo. Yeah. I want to sing for me, Lolita. The poet, author and Chancellor of the University of Manchester, Lem Cisse, took his friend, the Scottish Poetry Library Chief, Azif Khan, to a museum which, by British standards, is a mere stripling. Opened in 2004, the Foundling Museum tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, the first attempt to house and help children at risk of abandonment. The hospital was created with help from Hogarth, Gainsborough and Handel, just three of the artistic luminaries who donated sculptures, paintings and original sheet music to help fund the charity at its outset. Lem, who was brought up in care, pondered on the role the figure of the orphan has played across culture. Superman was a was a foundling. Uh-huh. Harry Potter was a foundling. Yeah. He really was. Uh-huh. Um, Moses was adopted uh-huh. in real life. Moses was adopted, and and this the Foundling Hospital is where, you know, the real foundlings were, yeah. uh, rather than the fictional. I was watching the adaptation of Les Misérables at the weekend, and you know, you look at a character like Cosette, you know, left by her mother in the care of someone else, and then the, the issues that came from that. And I found it such a difficult watch. I know it's fiction, but sometimes the best fiction and the best art can tell that story kind of deeper philosophical level as well. Well, if we go through popular culture and through classic culture, we'll find that there are foundlings actually right at the heart of it. For example, elf, contemporary reference. (laughs) (laughs) Elf, but they're right, Oliver Twist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Dickens was just round the corner here. Yeah. Uh, But the Foundling Museum kind of brings all of these stories together. And there is actually a painting that was inspired by one of Dickens' stories in here. I think what the best museums and the best galleries do is they present a story and it's for you to then question that narrative and see what context it's presented in, but also whose voice has been presented. If you look at foundlings and people who grew up in care, quite often they're the voiceless. Um, So who's actually given um, the people who were 
in the Fangland Hospital, their voice. That's what I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing. So look, here on the wall is a list of the names, some of the names that the young people were called. Every child, when accepted into the what does it say? Every child, when accepted into the hospital, was given a new name, in part to protect the anonymity of the parent. The names on this wall represent some of the first 3,000 children accepted in the 18th century. So we have a, a William Strongbow, a Sarah Rainbow, um, Charity Smith, uh, Christopher Wren, that's clearly a reference. Um, Alexander Pope. Francis Bacon. This is an unusual name. Boscawin Hollywell. I haven't come across that name, Boscawin, before. Yeah, it's Boscawin Hollywell. Isaac Bliss. Jane Hogarth. Inigo Scotland. Look, why do we think that the anonymity of the parents was important? I mean, what, what is that about? Is that because having your child in here was supposed to be a shameful thing or was thought of as a shameful thing? Francis Drake, even. There's another man. Francis Drake. It seems quite cold to me. It really does. Yeah, but it's quite often, if, you'd go out, if you go out to life with, with some of these names, it's almost like the conversation oh, that I the see. child would have as an adult. So, actually, having some of these names leads to being identified as somebody who was in a foundling yeah, hospital. Yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, being called Oliver Cromwell or Geoffrey Chaucer or... But it sounds like modern branding to me. This changing of names is very emotive to me, as somebody who had my own name changed. You were changed to Norman, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th I thought my name was Norman when I grew up, and that was actually the name of the social worker who gave me to the foster parents. So how do you feel when you hear the name Norman in, kind of, in the public realm when you're out and about? I'm all right with it. I mean... Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm the same person. People say, oh, you changed to Lemsis A. I'm like, no, my, my name was always Lemsis A. So this thing, this thing about naming somebody after somebody else who's been fostered or adopted is a really tricky uh, one. From the Rococo splendour of the Foundling Museum, we head westwards to the Design Museum in Kensington, a copper-clad colossus from the 1960s, an era when subtlety in architecture was a dirty word. Comedian and screenwriter Deborah Francis-White and actor and podcaster Russell Tovey took a tour around the building, joining the museum's assistant creator Lara Chapman, who took the pair to explore the museum's dark side. Hello, Lara. Hi, nice Thank to meet Thank you so much for meeting us here. Um, I hear that you, like Alice in Wonderland, have special backstage routes and can take us somewhere a little bit more underground. Incredibly exciting. Very exciting, yep. I'm an assistant curator at the Design Museum and we're um, just standing outside the collection store, um, which is where we keep the museum's collection. So it's all the bits and pieces that people have gifted us over the years or we've bought because we think they're particularly exciting pieces of design. And in the collection store, there's all sorts from sort of TVs and sneakers and posters and a lot of chairs. Yeah, it's very exciting in there. And I so a lot of people can't get back here to see this, so this today is a bit of an exclusive for me and Debs. Yeah, yeah. so we're standing outside the window now and you can sort of peer into it as the public, but usually you can't go in there because we have to keep the objects at a certain temperature and oh, right. make sure they're all conserved. So this is really the sort of 
behind the scenes of the museum. I'm a little worried now because Russell and I are very hot. <laughs> we are very, we're very clammy we, and we, we, we always sit on chairs. We so may, we, we're so hot we may affect <laughs> the, temperature. the temperature in there and that may corrode some of your most important items. But listen, we're willing to risk it if yeah. you are, Laura. We'll take the risk. So we're going into the storeroom now where you have all these design pieces that are like archived and kept perfectly pristine for future generations is going to outlive all of us. Uh, but we're looking at these kind of cages on the wall here that are supporting lots of artworks. There's a massive surfboard there, carved surfboard. There's like an electric bike. There's like a little pedal bike. These, these I mean, this storeroom must get really busy. What do you do when this overflows too much? eBay, is it? or? <laughs> <laughs> what Russ is saying is, would anyone notice if we just took one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just one, just yeah. that. That's fine. Uh, so we've, we're getting the sneak preview of Waystage, which will be out live on the floor by the time this podcast goes out. Mm. So listeners, if you're listening with your ears, you can come down and see what we're seeing, but in a bigger room, work better lit. What is Waystage? So Waystage is an exhibition about the climate crisis but really through the perspective of design and for quite a long time the museum and the curatorial team was wondering how how do we tell the story of the climate crisis and make it relevant for for our museum and our visitors Um, and waste is really a a huge part of the climate crisis and it's very much a problem of design designs help make it because designers work with plastics they work with materials that are toxic the construction industry and architecture they all produce a lot of waste, um, but there's also sort of in the exhibition we expose this take make waste economy, but then we also ask what can design do about it? So how can design rethink the systems, use new materials, sort of biomaterials, um, use existing waste streams to create new products and really help solve this problem of the climate crisis? Or if not solve it, then at least help them. Not make it any worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sustainability, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Deborah and Russell, who, I have been reliably informed, were separated from their stolen loot by Design Museum security whilst having a getaway treat egg McMuffin on the old Brompton Road. One of the reasons that, for better or worse, architects had the space to develop their brutalist vision in this country was due to the whacking great holes in our urban environment caused by the Blitz. Down in Lambeth, the Imperial War Museum, for my money the museum with the finest front lawn in Britain, doesn't disappoint. It was G.K. Chesterton who wrote that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. That love of what is left behind is perhaps felt most keenly by the refugees of war, forced to flee what was once their home. The novelist Elizabeth Day and her husband Justin Bassini explored the museum and talked about their own feelings on how being wrenched from your roots can affect your life in so many ways. So this is another exhibition called Refugees Forced to Flee, and it makes the point that since the First World War, countless lives have been shattered by conflict, and it's happening right now. And the UN estimates that almost 71 million people globally have been forced from their homes. That brings it home That is an amazing question, though, isn't it? Could you leave everything behind? Could you just pick yourself up and just walk away? If I were in that, horrendous situation where I was given 12 hours to leave my home, what I would take with me. I would definitely take my grandfather's cigarette case because for me that represents so much, but it also represents a sort of span of personal history. 
and is very important to me. And I like the idea of sort of it accompanying me through the next few years of my life. I would take photos. I would take probably a favourite book. Um, that would be hard for you. It would be hard for me. I'm not sure which one I'd take. And I'm not carrying any for you. <laughs> okay. I'd take a pen and paper because I think it's incredibly important to bear witness to experiences like I think that. I, I, would, I would find it very hard to walk away. But I think I would also be quite practical about it. You definitely... Oh, yeah, you'd take things I'd like take a things leather like, man. Yeah, you know, like first aid kits and torches and <laughs> things like that. I think personal item... I'd take a battery pack. This is why we're such a good couple. You need a battery <laughs> pack in today's world. I think the personal things I would take... I would take some documents. Might take our wedding certificate. <laughs> yeah, you see, practical. That's good. You see, a passport, that's important. But that's good because you've got the practical stuff covered. And some clothes. That's maybe why like we're a... such a good team. Exactly. Okay, so we're going into the first room. It's wallpapered in sort of 1950s, 60s style wallpaper. And I'm being drawn now to a case, a glass case, which has a teddy bear in it wearing this very pretty lace nightdress. And it's a teddy bear from 1936. And there is a photo next to it of a baby in a similarly pretty lace kind of nightdress. And I think that's the very bear in this black and white photograph lying on its side next to the baby. And we're told that this is three-year-old Anne Simpson. And Anne's family lived in Paris. In June 1940, Anne and her parents were forced to flee their home to escape the German invasion of France. They had to leave all of their possessions behind. Anne was so upset that she would have to leave her toys. She cried so much that her parents allowed her to bring only her favourite toy, which is this teddy bear. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. Really amazing. And to see it still here. Yeah. And it's been repaired over the years. It's lost an arm, but it's had an arm put back on it. It's really very moving. It's been, his face has been patched together. I so relate to that because my teddy bear was probably my favourite possession when I was that age. I remember my teddy bear turning up in a, in a mini that my father then drove and it had a seatbelt over it. He was in the passenger seat, the bear. <laughs> and I took that bear everywhere I travelled. So when we moved from... Epsom, where I was born, to Northern Ireland in 1982, Thomas the Bear came with me. And so I can completely relate to this story. It really humanises. Shall we move on? Yes, OK. Now from savage firearms to screeching feedback. The Irish novelist Emma Dabry and music and cultural writer Jesse Bernard have been to see an adjoining pair of palatial townhouses in Brook Street in Mayfair. The settings are the same, but the songs are very different. On one side, you're immersed in the early 18th century, where the creaking wooden floorboards were once traversed by composer George Frederick Handel. Cross the landing, and you head forward in time more than 200 years to the late 1960s, and the hangout of Jimi Hendrix, who made Brook Street his bolt hole in 1968. All along the Watchtower and the Messiah, Two tracks not usually found side by side on any Spotify playlist. We join Emma and Jesse on the Hendrix side with the museum's front of house officer, Joanna Roche. Hi. 
Hi, Emma and Jesse.、Uh, my name is Joanna Roche, and I am the front of house and learning officer here at Handel and Hendrix. Joanna, what's this room that we're about to move into? I can hear guitar strains and see lots on the walls. Yes,、yeah, so this room is now、um, used as、um, Jimi Hendrix exhibition space, but it used to be Handel's attic. So we're standing right in the separation between where、uh, the Hendrix building would have been, 23 Brook Street and 25 Brook Street. Oh wow! Yeah, so there's the remnants of、um, a very tiny-looking and narrow staircase. It looks like a little Hobbit staircase. And where does that lead to? So upstairs he would have had、um, you know a little kitchen, little bathroom, and another room. When Jimi Hendrix lived here. Yeah,、okay. exactly, and a small room that used to be used by George Harrison from time to time. After <laughs> yeah, of course, which is now called the George Harrison room. So other people lived downstairs, did they? So what was really convenient is that he didn't have any neighbors. It was offices around, so obviously you know that was really perfect for them, allowing them to make as much noise as they wanted to, because I think Kathy and Jimi tried to. You know these other flats around, and a lot of the landlords just said no because you know they can they could foresee a bit of trouble. So yeah, it was just perfect that it was offices, you know, with no one in the evening or nights. I think I read somewhere that he lived in was it George Harrison or Ringo Starr? Ringo Starr's yeah flat for a while, but he, Ringo had to ask them to. To move on. Yeah, exactly. I think that reputation kind of stick to them.、Um, yeah, was in Montague Square before he actually, you know, decided he wanted to live here. He was crashing from、uh, place to place, and that was one of the main ones.、Um, and yeah, they had a bit of trouble, so they had to be,、um, you know, gently asked to to leave the <laughs> and not come back. <laughs> I can hear the definitely hear the strings of、uh, Jimmy from back in the day,、um, but also just a sense of what. The area was like at the time. You sometimes see some of imagery of like what it was like、um, in the sixties in Soho and just and Mayfair as well. But I love this blazer that he's that's on display here.、Um, it's a dandy fashions double vested jacket, and I just love the floral print of it. It's fitted, tailored. It's a a golden green silk with richly embroidered pink and golden flowers. It's got kind of like,、um, yeah, it's got it's got kind of like a, a classical, romantic energy to it. Maybe that's Handel's Handel's influence. I think I think it just really brings his character to life and who he was. There weren't many black men with that kind of. That kind of platform, they were in the public eye in that way, that presented in the way he did, and he really represents. Like he's he's such a he's such a forerunner, I think, of a lot of these conversations that we have today about black masculinity and about kind of expanding notions of black masculinity. Like he has quite a queer energy. There's quite like a femininity to him. He's just wearing like like silk kimonos. He's got this like huge. Afro hair at a time where most Black American men would be far more, far more clean cut, and even if they did have afros, you know these are very like precise, like neat, like well manicured afros. So he's really representing、um, kind of yeah an alternative way of being black, and black audiences often didn't respond very well to that presentation.
Yeah, so we're entering into the room in the museum that's been recreated to look as it would have in Jimmy's time. And it's very intimate because it's his bedroom. And I believe it's been reconstructed from photographs and images of the time, um, full of feathers and tassels and quite Indian kind of ethnic hippie 1960s looking bits and pieces. His bed's very low. I think the first thing that really stuck out to me was the piece of paper by the bed on the bedside table and the tape recorder as well. I can imagine as soon as he woke up or just before he went to sleep, he would have jotted down some notes or even just recorded something, whether it's just like some some lyrics that he was going to perform or whether it's just conversations and... Yeah, so there would have been moments where it would have just been him and Kathy, his girlfriend at the time, in the room. And it's those small, intimate moments that we often take for granted as music fans. Like, they're, they're people at the end of the day. They often have the same rituals that we have as well. So I'm just looking at what looks like some lyrics that he wrote down. So I'm just going to read a couple of lines. Well, I float in liquid gardens in Arizona's new red sands. I taste the honey from a flower... Blue in California, and New York drones as we held hands. Well, I stand up next to a mountain and I chop it down with the edge of my hand. Oh, yeah, so that was uh, lyrics from what song was that again? Voodoo Child, yeah, Slight Voodoo Return, Child. yeah. And I, I think the way um, the paper is next to, his, next to his bed, it makes me think that, like, maybe his lyrics came to him, you know, in dreams. So he's, like, turning around and, like, writing stuff that he's thought of while he's asleep or that he's dreamt. It's got that kind of otherworldly dimension. Incredible. Hendrix was truly an original. Now, what phrase is likely to get even the most academically inclined museum lover into a euphoric spin so heady that even the Hadron Collider can't keep up? Gift shop closing down sale, perhaps? No, it is, of course, sneak preview. Nothing warms up the cockles more than being both learned and privileged with a backstage lanyard to prove it. Actor Siobhan McSweeney and her friend Kevin Brady were joined by Phoebe Harkins, marketing and audience manager of the wonderful Welcome Collection just near Euston Station. It's a cornucopia of artefacts relating to medicine, life and art. Phoebe is the woman to talk to if you want to get an exclusive look at the museum's upcoming exhibitions. Right, well, this room has... Quite a few things in it. There's oh wow, oh, oh no, look, it's, <laughs> it's an astronaut. It's an Space astronaut. has come upon us. It's an <gasps> astronaut. <gasps> look at that. It's actually quite a groovy looking That's astronaut. That's amazing. I mean, it's not the most traditional of astronauts. It's a sort of <coughs> fabric <coughs> patterned. Look, yeah, it looks like sort of. That looks like um, a Nigerian fabric, doesn't it? Yeah. Covering the the it oxygen tank. The, 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 rather than the. Yeah, the backpack, which would it's have, full, like, it's a nest. the life support system is full of, like, like sort of bits, bottles and a teapot. Um, there's a telescope in there. There's a... A book uh, and an oil burner. Yeah. The toothbrush in there. Yeah. Toothbrush. So, basically, as if you were going camping. And, look, there's a suitcase, mm. an old-fashioned oh, suitcase with a blanket sort of, in it. Is it, is it someone's... The evolution of the species and Captain Cook's voyage is... It's all... It's all yeah, it's like going on an expedition, isn't it? Mm, it's which I suppose... Yeah. Space is. That's, space is an expedition, Siobhan. That's lovely. Look, yeah. look at those boots. They're gorgeous. Space yeah. boots. Moon boots. I need to... Where's the... the oh, please do not touch. We touched it, Siobhan. We touched it. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> God. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. Mm. 
It's called Refugee Astronaut 3 by Yinka Shonibari, a fiberglass mannequin, Dutch wax printed cotton textile, an astronaut helmet, moon boots, etc. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, it's a, a, a monumental figure of a refugee astronaut. Mm. The, yeah, a net of possessions. So they're on a sort of hurried flight. So, God, that feels quite precedent with what's going yeah, on in the world does, at the moment. With the... And actually, even coming here today, yeah. I was nearly late because there's a big demo um, welcoming refugees. Outside. From Ukraine? Yeah. Wow. It's that's interesting. It's amazing that we're looking at that now. It's... It's interesting because when I think about space travel, I must admit, I do slightly roll my eyes a little bit because <laughs> it seems to me quite often that it's, it's a hobby for men with too much money rather than some... Like, I, I don't see the... I understand intellectually the idea of exploration, but emotionally I go, why... I know it's not one or the other, but what I mean... Like, but, but with this is the fact that you have refugees. You never think of like somebody going to space as a refugee. No. But that is potentially very well, much our future. A, but, that's, but, that's but you also never think of refugees as, as sort of um, wanting to go somewhere. They're yeah. being forced to flee. Whereas a, a, somebody in a spacesuit, a fella in a spacesuit, wants to go to space. You know, they're not being yeah. forced up there. They're not being shot out of a cannon, whereas a refugee has to keep moving, you know, yeah. has to flee. And that's an interesting sort of a paradoxical thing. Yeah. Do you think I it's think a woman or a man inside I don't there? know. I, I actually thought it was a woman, to be so honest. So did I. Yeah. And do, did you know why, why they, they didn't have women in space for so long? Are you going to say something about the toilet? Oh, no, it was periods. Uh-huh. Yeah. And actually, when they sent the first woman astronaut to space, uh-huh. then they provided her with, like... <laughs> 40,000 damn yeah. packs or something. So Isn't that, that stupid? It's absolutely insane. Isn't that stupid? Just like, <laughs> a, 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 again, it only How many feeds, periods do you think you'll have in a three-day period? But also like thinking, oh, well, you know, the, the reason was is that they wouldn't allow women in space because they were worried that because of the lack of gravity that the blood would not be able to exit the body, absolutely. thereby causing uh, medical problems to the women. If you had asked any woman on Earth... Are on in space, they would have gone. Are you are you mad? And of course, it just sort of feeds that little suspicion that there is something inherently misogynistic with mm. space travel, apart th- from Jean Luc Picard. <laughs> I think at the moment, though, it does feel like space is you know it's become really commercialised, hasn't it? You know, NASA's yeah, putting well, out. it's, it's not. It, people are literally yeah. making money out of it. And that's, then, Back in the day, you know, it was very much about human endeavor. But even that, you know, the no, space race... No, it wasn't race, about human endeavor. It was about showing who had a bigger penis. But it's like, you know, the space race was thing. But there's still amazing things came out of it. And I think, you know, the, yep. the science and the full the scientists who created that program and the amazing yep. things it did, you know, there's so, ma- so many human benefits that come from that. And that's a big lesson of science, isn't it? What can often be... So many early scientists were basically pursuing a hobby, but the things they discovered in that hobby have changed, you know, human civilization. They've created the, the world we live in. And no, the, for sure. Absolutely. Know, but... But, you so, know, yeah. it also... Get off space. I, I Get off the back space. of space. No one's asking me to <laughs> go to space for fear my little womb explodes or something. We really don't need that, not today. Now, the actor and writer Lalita Chakrabarti and her friend, the artist Sarah Sharma, are clearly aspiring, or indeed fully developed, polymaths. Why else would one make a beeline for a museum containing an incongruous cultural and historical quiche made up of taxidermied animals, musical instruments, aquariums, anthropology and natural history? 
I'm a huge fan of the Horniman Museum, though I have lost several days of my life staring into the strangely docile eyes of the immense stuffed walrus or admiring its collection of parasitic wasps. So I did warn Lolita and Sarah in advance that if they want to make sure their acting and artistic working lives don't suffer, they should, under no circumstances, head into the Natural History Gallery. Shall we go down to the Natural History Gallery? Yeah, let's go. I think, is it from the left? I think it's down this slope and to the left, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. This room is always surprising, isn't it? Because very it's huge. It's building. huge, yeah. It's very nice. And high, high Look ceiling. At the ceiling. Yeah. Curved ceiling. Oh, listen to that echo. Yeah. I want you to sing for me, Lolita. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? When could I ever do that? Unless it was empty. I remember my kids when they were at primary school, they yeah. used to do sleepovers in here. Wow. Yeah, the class That's would come. Really nice. I know, with all these skeletons and creatures. Mm, lovely. Let's wow. go straight to the centre. The, the centre. Wow. You, you can't miss him, can you? <gasps> oh, my God. Do you think he's, it's real? I don't know if it's real, although I was told that this is possibly not a fully grown walrus. Really? It's enormous, isn't it? Wow. I mean, it, it's like how many... The it's size like of... Three, three, three metres long, something like that. How many people would that be? Eight people? <laughs> <laughs> those tusks so do you think it's real i don't know shall we touch it it says don't touch but nobody's here <laughs> i think you're an artist you can touch I it can. <laughs> hmm? Is it real? it's real oh my goodness somebody just came up to me and yeah. said that this walrus is real really i thought it was a wow. constructed model let's read the thing History of the walrus. It's been on display at the Horniman Museum for more than a century. It most likely came from the Hudson Bay area of eastern Canada and was first seen in London in the Canada section of the Colonial and Indian Exhibition in South Kensington in 1886. Very special piece in a museum to see. Yeah. You don't realise how big they are and how huge and how fat <laughs> don't body shame the walrus that's what my daughter would say you can't body shame the walrus <laughs> it's great to come here with you today yeah because it's very unlikely our kids are very different ages and uh, we hang out a lot don't we but it's really nice to do the museum with you yeah the first time first time because mm. we literally live next door to each other we have the same uh, wall. We have the same wall, exactly. <laughs> so you can hear... I bet you can hear me shouting on the kids. <laughs> no, but I can hear piano. I can hear piano. So you can hear me shouting then. <laughs> Don't be polite, Lolita. <laughs> Especially uh, in the morning before school. Oh, I dread to think what you can hear from our side. <laughs> Nothing. You're very oh, good, polite. Oh, good, oh, good, oh, good. <laughs> I remember when you uh, first moved in. And, uh, you know, there's interest, isn't, isn't there? Who's moving in? Who's coming? And, yeah. and we looked through, because we're nosy, we looked through the front window and there was these, I don't know, how, how big are your paintings? They're enormous. They're wall-sized paintings, yeah. aren't they? They are estimating six foot, eight foot I canvases? can understand metres. They're two metres, two metres and a half. Two metres and like a half, that. right. So one half of your house, which is our TV room, is your studio and yeah. we, we looked in to see all oh, the neighbours have moved in you know what <laughs> what what are they like and saw these paintings that were 
are extraordinary. Thank well, you. Yeah, we were yeah, really blown away. And then you were extremely friendly. Yeah, when we moved, we want to discover our neighborhood. We want to know everybody. We want to feel that we belong to this uh, yes. a city by knowing everybody. So much for my advice. Friends and co-owners of One Slice of Wall, that's neighbours Lolita and Sarah. And if you're wondering, the fat-shamed walrus, after much counselling, is said to be making a steady recovery of his self-esteem. And finally, let's head to Ealing in West London, where TV presenter Mel Gedroich and her friend Emma Pierce ventured to the Pitts Hanger Manor and Gallery. It was partially built by the neoclassical architect Sir John Soane, the man responsible for landmark structures including the Bank of England and Dulwich Picture Gallery. Sir John lived in the place for a time, but eventually sold it in 1810, after his wife Ella complained she was unhappy in what was then an entirely rural village far from the smog and noise of London. The echoes of 19th century domestic disquiet don't seem to have vanished completely from the manor, as Mel and Emma soon discovered. I think there are ghosts and Literal rifts. ghosts? Hopefully not literal. OK. But I sense, you know, unease and family rifts in here, dramas. You're very sensitive. A bit like dynasty. But dynasty, dynasty and Ealing, Ealing dynasty. Ealing dynasty, but 19th century. I, I have a sense there were sort of flouncings out, doors slamming, plates being thrown, that kind of thing. We need to find out more. I'm up for it. Good. Now, Purse, none of your slumming. I'm not taking you in through the old tradesman's entrance. We're going to go very much frontally into the grand entrance. This is actually very impressive, isn't it? It's beautiful. Getting up these wonderful steps, rather palatial. Built to the exact height of a carriage approaching so that you'd be on the same level as somebody coming in. I got that fact from a book. I didn't know that myself. I'm still impressed. And I do love a man who thinks ahead. Planning is everything. <laughs> Right, come on in. Oh, look at this grand hall. Gosh. Beautiful. Wow. That is amazing. The colour scheme is so vibrant. Kind of deep ochre and black. Or maybe dark charcoal. It's quite bold, isn't it? Very bold. Yes. Slightly sort of, I'm getting, bizarrely, sort of flapper nightclub vibe. I've never been into a flapper nightclub, so I can't confirm or deny. Nor have I, but I'm just imagining some very glamorous occasion. I was thinking it looks rather like one of those um, Greek urns. The inside of a Greek urn. Or the outside of a Greek urn. Oh, the outside of a Greek urn. (laughs) I don't want to be trapped inside a Greek urn with you, much as I love you, Purse, but... I think there wouldn't be room, would there? But it's very nice, because straight ahead, you get that beautiful window through to the open, I suppose... John Soane's, it's his back garden really, isn't it? It's a beautiful park out there. Should we check out the eating room? Absolutely. Will there be snacks? I hope so. Here's hoping. I hope they're not just museum fake snacks on the real thing. Oh, look at this. (gasps) Look at the colours. Suddenly we're in kind of amazing pastel territory. It's very Wedgwood. Yes, it is. Beautiful blues and amazing scroll work. And lovely, is that done in plaster, all that white yes, stuff on the, the top? Decoration. It's a bit like being, and you'll relate to this, inside a cake, isn't it? <gasps> it's very cake-like. Oh, 
That was a surprise. That was a very good moment. So as you go around the museum, you'll suddenly get these little bits of audio coming out at you as to sort of create the idea that you're here and having a dinner party, I think. Move further down the table, it might be something else. So there's a real old windbag around this table. Someone is just going on and on. Turner Turner is here, lovely. Sally Smith, never heard of her. No, never mind. Johnson at the other end of the table. You're very quiet, Mr. Batsman. I just enjoy listening to the conversation. I love Eliza. Brilliant. I'm slightly gutted I wasn't asked to do that, uh, that voiceover work. I could have given her a lot more. You would have given her your all. I would. Career jealousy and casual infighting. Just what Sir John Soane would have wanted. And so concludes our speedy journey through the Meet Me at the Museum archive and just some of the amazing venues that London has to offer. Remember, if you have a National Art Pass, you can get free or reduced entry to a host of venues across the capital, as well as 50% off major exhibitions. Right, I'm off for a mug of tea, slice of cake, and maybe a quick spin round the gift shop. But let's meet in the museum soon, shall we? I'll be holding a single rose, a copy of the Evening Standard, and looking lovingly at a massive stuffed walrus. Can't wait. <laughs>